You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer. That Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps, and if you can't find it, contact us, and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com, or on Twitter at brewcrime, on Facebook at brewcrime, or if you want to go to our group, it's group slash brewcrime on Facebook, or on Instagram at Pacific Beer Chat. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. Hi, I'm Annie, and as always, I'm talking to you from very rainy Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna, sitting in cold and rather gloomy Vienna, and you just heard Beck, Nina, and Mike from Brew Crime, and they are three hilarious friends who love to talk about messed up stories while drinking beer, which is so up my alley because I do like beer, (laughs) and I do like messed up stories, so they have been added to my playlist. Nice. So if you're a regular listener, welcome back, Hellions. We hope you've had a great week. And if you are a first-time listener, then hello, welcome. We're really glad that you have popped in. I just wanted to take a moment to do a very quick correction in our John List episode. I said I thought that their house budget of 20 to 30 grand was crazy high, but 20 grand was actually about the national average. So 50 grand for that mansion would still be a lot. And, you know, especially because it was a fixer-upper. So, hashtag shiplap. Also, shout out to our YouTube listener, Clash813, who commented that Brenda, Helen's daughter from her first marriage, did go on to become a grandma. And we are very happy about that fact. I did find information on her through genealogy and birth and death certificates. I just really didn't get much into that because she never spoke publicly. So, I just try to, you know, respect people's privacy. But it's it's always a case-by-case episode based on you know, how deep we like to get into the epilogues. But thank you for making that happy point clear. And thanks so much for listening. All right. Why don't we dive into our freshest of hell? Johanna, what do you have for us today? Today, I will tell you about an Austrian serial killer. Oh, Jack Unterweger? Wrong. Oh, I know he's the only Austrian serial killer that is, you know, somewhat known internationally. (laughs) And I promise we will talk about him another time. But today is about a female serial killer. And I think... That's a first for us. If I remember correctly, we only talked about male serial killers so far. So Fritz Hamann, Karl Denke. Yeah. Who else was there? Um, Axeman was an unsolved serial, maybe. But yeah, that's it. Those are the only three serial killer cases we've covered so far. There's so much research when it comes to multiple victims, especially when, you know, you really want to tell the victim's story. But we'll definitely get into more serial killer stories. Yeah, you're right. <sighs> so many good stories to cover so little time. But I do think you all know everything there is to know about, you know, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. That's why we prefer to tell you about lesser known cases anyway. So today you all will learn about an Austrian female serial killer. Oh, how many Austrian female serial killers are there even? Apparently seven because I checked, but four of them worked as a team. As a team? Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, they were four nurses at a Viennese hospital. Uh, I pass there every time when I take the dogs to the woods. 
Oh boy. But let's forget about six of them and talk about Marta Marek. Okay. As always, you will find our sources in our Facebook group, but my biggest help for this episode was an article by Werner Sabitzer, and we will post the link, of course, as always. And as always, with these cases from days long gone by, it's extremely difficult to, first of all, you know, get enough information, and second, to separate uh, facts from fiction. Oh yeah, I have spent hours before trying to nail down an exact birthday and then I'm finally like why are you doing this literally <laughs> nobody cares it's maddening so yeah do you have any warnings for our listeners yeah quite a few actually okay I will mention self-mutilation sexual abuse of a minor and the murder of a child okay yeah that really hits all the bad ones so my duvet is in the wash so I'm not quite as snug as I'd like to be but I'm ready I'm ready for it Okay, let's do this. So Marta Marek was born on October 10th, 1897 in Vienna as Carolina Löwenstein, but she was called Marta by everyone. I don't know if that was her middle name or if they called her just by a random name. <laughs> who knows? It's possible. She also had a younger sister named Paula, who seems to have been born in 1907. And I'm almost certain she had more siblings in between because that would have been a huge gap back in those days. But unfortunately, I couldn't find any information and maybe... If there were more siblings, they didn't survive infancy. Mm. I found three different years of birth for Marta, but 1897 was used most often, and it is the one that makes most sense. Sure. But I do apologize in advance if any of my sources are incorrect. Okay, so her father Rudolf Löwenstein worked as an official here for the Austrian Railway, but after Paula's birth, he apparently had enough of his family life and left wife and children to move to the United States. Oh, wow. Those railway men. I think, was that kind of a Swiss job back in the day? Uh, like... A good job. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the railway was very important in the US and it was definitely more of an adventurous undertaking. I think, I mean, just like, it would be an attractive job to women, I guess. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It was definitely a super secure job, comparable to working as a clerk for the postal service. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So now the family had to move in with a relative, as it was impossible for Marta's mother to afford a home for herself and her daughters. And two years later, in 1909, when she was only 12 years old, Marta made the acquaintance of a man, 50 years her senior, while she was riding the cable car. His name was Moritz Fritsch. He was a very wealthy man who took an interest in a young girl. No, honey. And I assume all of our eyebrows are racing. Yes, we can all imagine what that means. So 12-year-old Marta runs into this older man, 62 years old to be exact, and he quote-unquote takes an interest in her. Mm. And her mom reacts as all moms would. She immediately reports him with the police and had him arrested. Oh, good. No, unfortunately her mom thinks that this might be the chance to get her family out of the financial struggles. So Marta's mother blackmails Moritz Fritsch, tells him no. that she will go and report him to the police if he wouldn't financially support them. Oh, no. So that's what he did. Now, I read in one article that he would send Marta to schools in France and England to get her the best education. But honestly, I'm not sure that I believe that. It might be just some of the lore that evolved around this case. Yeah, I could see people not wanting to believe that, you know? Like, it's so awful that people would make up better stories to explain things. So did she go to school abroad? Did she live with him in his villa? Or was she there as a guest whenever he asked her to come join him? I'm not 100% certain, but most articles state that she did live with him in his mansion that he rented in Mödling. That's a small town south of Vienna. 
Yeah. Oh, see, I think I'd like to imagine him as like the nice daddy Warbucks kind of situation, which it sounds like a lot of people tried to explain it away that way, where probably he was a, a hebophile, which is, if if you don't know, pedophiles are attracted to uh, very young children, and hebophiles are attracted to like prepubescent, like right on the cusp of puberty, sort of, which is very disturbing. So yeah, that's awful. Yeah. You know what? He reminds me a lot of Stanford White. Ew, yes. Yes. Ew. So when Moritz Fritsch dies on 5th of August 1923, the now 27-year-old Martha inherits quite a fortune, consisting of valuable furniture, carpets, and money. Hmm, carpets. Anytime someone inherits a carpet, I just think Big Lebowski. So, <laughs> But yeah, okay, so he dies, she inherits a fortune, lots of nice carpets. Good for her. Yeah, they tied a room together, you know. <laughs> I mean, you need a good carpet. Contrary to what many people think, Martha didn't inherit the mansion because it was just rented and not owned by Fritsch. But nevertheless, Martha continued to live there for quite a while. And only three months later, Martha marries Emil Marek, a tech student who is six years younger than Martha and they live in the mansion. Emil Marek comes from a rather reputable family. After high school, he started to study mechanical engineering here in Vienna. And soon after his wedding, he quits university and focuses on becoming an inventor. <laughs> so Pretty much what happened, neither Martha nor Emil were working. They were living more than comfortable from the wealth Martha had inherited. But guess what? Only a short time later, most of the money was spent and the couple were about to face some severe financial problems. And then more misfortune, a fire broke out in the mansion and destroyed all of the valuable furniture. <sighs> But Martha was really lucky because only three months earlier she had taken out a fire indemnity insurance and they did pay for everything that was lost in the fire. Nothing suspicious going on here. So the couple lived from the insurance money. But again, they didn't find it necessary to actually go out looking for a job. <laughs> oh yeah, no red flags there at all. <laughs> right? And then something happened. On 13th of June 1925, Emil went to the garden to do some work. He took an axe because apparently he wanted to chop a figure out of a tree stump or something. Okay. And while working on the tree, he slipped and chopped off his left foot. Oh, fuck. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. It's not, it's not really that funny, but I'm like imagining this guy who's like leaving his mansion that's full of great carpets, like with his <laughs> axe to chop a figure out of a tree stump. He's going to carve some decorative stump with a fucking axe and loses <laughs> a foot. Like, who, who are these people? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately, all they could do was to amputate Emil's left leg below the knee. Oh, God. Where the hell did he hit himself to have to have his like whole lower leg taken? Jeez. All right. That's bad. Yeah. Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> but Martha and Emil were once more really lucky. Because only two days prior to the accident, so on 11th of June 1925, Emil had taken out an insurance with the Anglo-Danubian Lloyd that would pay his wife $100,000 if he would suffer from a lethal accident. And take that, even $400,000 if Emil would suffer from an accident that would leave him handicapped. <sighs> Nothing suspicious going on here. At all. Oh no, that's very normal. So the insurance company was like, hell no, that's some absolute bullshit. 
and they reported the couple to the police for insurance fraud and an investigation was started. And okay, so I mean, it's, it's, this is clearly fraud, right? <laughs> well, let's see. So first off, what was really suspicious was that Emil Marek had made himself 10 years older in his insurance application. Oh. And he had also given himself the title of graduate engineer, which was fake. All in all, the investigations and trial preparations took two years, which seems insanely long, don't you think? Yeah, that does seem like a long time. I mean, it's just for insurance fraud. But I'm guessing they weren't in prison or anything during that time, right? No. It was just a question of whether they'd pay. Yeah. Yeah. So... Finally, on 28th of March 1927, the trial started, and the medical expert stated that Emil Marek's foot was hit four times with an axe. That's gonna leave a mark. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> four times! Wow. I don't feel bad making fun of this guy, because I know you, and I know bad things are coming. Do you? <laughs> I mean, a little bit. He's not the worst person in this story. Okay, sorry. I feel bad about his leg then. Sorry, Emil. Sorry I laughed about your leg. Also, an anonymous letter arrived that read, quote, Mrs. Marek did chop off her husband's foot herself, and I myself delivered a morphium injection that she administered to her husband in the foot where a spot had been marked with a pencil beforehand. For my assistance in the matter, I received 200 shilling, end quote. So I checked and that would be around 560 euros nowadays, I think. See, I don't feel bad again, and this all makes sense. I think it would be very hard to chop off your own foot. You think? I used to have these stupid injections, Humira injections, before they changed the formula, and it felt like you were injecting acid. I could stick the needle in, but then I couldn't push the plunger just because it hurt so much. So, like, I 100% get needing your spouse to help you with a solid axing. I mean... <laughs> just the fact that he went along with it, it's... Sorry, it's this is insane. So did they ever find out who wrote the letter? I don't think it was ever really proven without any doubt, but the judge as well as the police believed the author to be the very infamous golden fountain pen king, Ernst Heinrich Winkler. Now, this guy is so weird he would almost deserve his own episode, but here are some facts about him. I'm ready. Ernst Heinrich Winkler was born in 1886 and owned a very prestigious stationery store in the inner city at the Kohlmarkt, to be exact. Nowadays, there's an Amani store at this address, so you can imagine how good the address is. Ah, yeah. So Ernst Winkler did stuff like, for example, visiting a jewelry store in Dresden and misrepresenting himself there as a nobleman. And he was arrested and sentenced to six years in prison and ten years loss of uh, honor for his imposture loss of honor? Yeah, so apparently that meant that for a certain amount of time you lost all your rights as a citizen. But what does that mean? Like, just no trash collection or library card? Like, <laughs> Well, it wouldn't mean that for the 10 years he was pretty much stuck in Dresden, unable to return to Austria. Like, he was just not a citizen of Austria anymore. Oh, so kind of like parole here, where like you're out of prison, but you're super restricted on what you can do? Yeah, but he just didn't have his citizenship anymore. He was like um, lawless. I don't know how you oh, call right. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but don't worry, because in 1914, Ernst Winkler was pardoned and he returned to Vienna. But he didn't stop. He kept up with his what he called mystifications. And he faked suicides, wrote false confession letters for many notorious crimes <sighs> in Vienna. And he used all this to advertise his stationery store where he would proudly display the newspaper articles about him in the shop windows. I mean, there are a lot of people who think there's no such thing as bad press. In 1928, he was shortly committed to the asylum in Steinhof as a patient of 
Julius Wagner Jaurek. Now I know that's a name that you remember. <laughs> Julius? Yes, I do. He was the man who won a Nobel Prize for his work treating syphilis with malaria. So now I'm wondering if Ernst had syphilis. It would explain some of that bizarre behavior. I don't necessarily think so. I wonder if Julius Wagner Jaurek is gonna continue to pop up in our stories. Full circles, people. That's what we keep saying. There would be so many more stories about Winkler. Let me just say that the last time he made headlines was in 1958 when he wrote a confession letter for the murder of Rosemarie Nitripit. And that's another case that is on my list of episodes I want to cover. I don't know that one. And in 1974, the infamous fountain pen king died completely impoverished in the hospital here in Hitzing, which is also the one I mentioned before. Oh. The one I pass almost every day. Okay, enough from Ernst Winkler, back to Martha and Emil Marek. So this letter arrives and Martha swears that it's fake and that she did not chop off her husband's foot. Ah, okay. She swears on the cross that is hanging on one of the walls in the courtroom, says that God is her witness. That seems to impress the spectators. Well, I mean, she did swear on the cross, so... <laughs> I mean, we all know that this is something to be taken for face value. Who would ever lie while swearing on the cross? No one, on account of how you just burst into flames. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it also helps that the press seems to be very smitten by Martha. If journalist and author Felix Seiten, uh, he wrote Bambi, by the way. Wait, so, sorry, I feel like I keep interrupting with downers. So Bambi, the beloved children's story that starts with a baby deer seeing his mother's head shot off? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Austro-Hungarian author found a new and very creative way for childhood trauma. Uh, way more subtle than a Krampus and a Strubelpeter. <laughs> Got it. I mean, you're so good at it, though. Why wouldn't you keep doing it? That's what we do. That's our thing. So Felix Salten was attending the trial to report for the Neue Freie Presse, and he described Martha as, quote, remarkably beautiful woman. Her white powdered face is absolutely even and almost translucent. End quote. Her defense attorney handles the rest, and in the end, Martha and Emil Marek are found not guilty of insurance fraud. Really? Yep. Felix Salten writes, quote, There could have been no other verdict than this one. It was a matter of the heart, a demand of humanity. End quote. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Mareks are, however, found guilty of defamation. They had accused doctors at the hospital where Emil's leg had been amputated of manipulating the leg to make it look as if it was hit four times by an ex. And I think the couple had also tried to bribe some of the doctors. I'm not sure about that. Oh, man. The verdict is three and four months in prison, and the sentence is later raised to seven months for both. Okay, so the couple has to go to jail. But they managed to get several reprieves due to health issues and a pregnancy. Finally, on 13th of June 1928, Emil Marek goes to jail only to be pardoned one month later. Marta reports to prison on 1st of August 1930 after giving birth to their son Alphonse in 1929. After the trial, the couple agrees to a settlement with the insurance company <laughs> and the Anglo-Danubian Lloyd pays them 180 thousand dollars and if i converted that correctly that would be 2.6 million dollars today wow i mean you can just about get by on that kind of money <laughs> and in 1932 mother gives birth to a daughter ingeborg sorry what was the name ingeborg ingeborg okay <laughs> i feel like today we're going to be talking about a lot of people whose parents didn't love them enough <laughs> just Based on their names, but I mean, it seems like things are paying off for them. 
They seem like they're doing okay. It looks like, yeah. But what I didn't tell you until now is that while Marta was in prison, one of her cellmates was Leopoldina Lichtenstein. That's another great name. Who is that? Well, she had murdered her husband in 1925 using Celio paste. And Celio was a red poison that was easily available during that time. And it mostly contained thallium sulfate. Now, Leopoldine, who did have a lover, confessed that she had indeed poisoned her husband, but she stated, you know, she didn't want to kill him. She only wanted to make him really, really sick so that he would be bedridden and could not bother her anymore. Oh, well, sure. I mean, that's understandable. <laughs> right? I mean, <sighs> those people. So later during her trial, she changed her statement to all she wanted was to make him fall ill so that she could nurse him back to health and win back his love. She was charged with manslaughter and sentenced to eight years in prison. And there she met Marta Marek, and it looks like she educated her about the effect of celio paste. <sighs> and I have no idea what Marta and Emil did with all the money they had received from the insurance company. But once more, it's gone way too soon. Luckily, Marta receives a letter from Brazil stating that she is the sole heiress of a Brazilian coffee plantation owner who had attended the trial for two days while visiting Vienna. Isn't that just wonderful? Yeah, only problem, there was no plantation owner and no fortune. Oh no, not even a single nice carpet? No, not even one. <laughs> <laughs> not even one, no. It looks like Marta received one of the first con letters, you know, like nowadays those spam emails <laughs> by con artists. <laughs> oh, I do. And lately all of my spam phone calls are in Mandarin and I only took one semester, so I don't know if I've won something or if someone is coming to get me. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So in the meantime, Emil takes out a loan to start a taxi company. I mean, they had $2.6 million in today's money and he has to take out a loan <laughs> right. to start a taxi company. Like, where does it even go? I don't know. But in the end, his business venture fails, of course, and all that is left are debts. No. <sighs> and then he gets offered a management position in a factory in Algier, so he travels there. <laughs> but the factory is nothing but a little shop, and the shop closes soon after his arrival. Oh, man. So he returns to Vienna in 1931, and he finds employment in a radio factory. And a family of four moves to a little house in an allotment garden that belongs to Emil's parents. Oh, wow. I'm sorry, but that's that's got to be jarring for her, right? Because since the age of 12, she's been spoiled and pampered and, like... Lived in mansions and... Definitely. Yeah. You know, so now they're living in a little place that his parents own and he's working in a factory. She must be thrilled. <laughs> well, she must have felt humiliated. For no reason, because... Yeah, whatever. So in July 1932, Emil gets very sick and the former strong and extremely healthy man loses weight rapidly. Oh. Can barely talk anymore and later on is even paralyzed. Also three-year-old Alphonse and seven-month-old Ingeborg show similar symptoms. Martha takes care of them relentlessly but refuses to call for a doctor. And on 31st of July 1932, Emil Marek dies. <sighs> And at first, the doctors suspect a ruptured appendix, but later notes lung infection as cause of death. <sighs> Ingeborg, barely alive, is taken to the hospital where she dies on 2nd of September 1932. And again, lung infection is stated as cause of death. And Martha herself now too claims that she suffers from the same symptoms as the rest of the family, and she and Alphonse are taken to the hospital. Alphonse survives and also Martha recovers. Of course she does. And after Emil and Ingeborg are dead, the newspaper report once more of the tragic fate of beautiful Martha Marek, now widow, 
and mother. Well, I just feel really bad for Ingeborg, especially Emil, but mm-hmm. especially Ingeborg. It's horrible. I mean, yeah. The readers are so touched by her story that they donate money. Oh my god, it's so obvious what's happening here. What did she look like? Do we have photos? Yeah, and we will post them. Yeah. They donate money, and also a relative of Martha, her great-aunt Susanne Löwenstein, supports Martha and Alphonse financially, and even makes her her heiress. Uh, You know, poor Martha, she can't get a break because another tragedy hits her. Because weirdly, soon after the great-aunt changes her will, she falls ill. It's shocking. I'm shocked. Right? I mean, she loses weight, loses her hair can't talk or swallow anymore and again Martha is there to take care of the patient but to no avail because Susanne Löwenstein dies in July of 1934. Cause of death? Natural. Oh that poor woman. Mm-hmm. And Martha inherits silver cutlery, jewelry, furniture and precious carpets. <laughs> precious carpets. <laughs> no. it's like, what is it with the carpets? I don't know. I don't even like carpets. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave carpets to all my nieces and nephews, like very specifically. And then when they get them, they'll find out that all of the carpets in my house are like super shitty, like $200, (laughs) like from TJ Maxx or Home Goods. Because when you have dogs, you don't buy nice carpets. No, you don't. You just would never. (laughs) My family dogs ruined every antique rug at my parents house so but the carpets thing is just it's killing me but i know i mean they were yeah expensive yeah i love a beautiful carpet i would love to you know save up and buy like a couple thousand dollars worth of carpet for the dining room but as soon as i do the dog will vomit on it and then eat the vomit and then vomit it back up again (laughs) the circle of vomit it's not gonna happen okay so She's now killed off her aunt and inherited again. No, she took really good care of her and it was just... Oh. Bad coincidence. Right. (laughs) Just terrible timing. Tragic. It it is horrible. It's horrible. No, it is really... No, it really is terrible, but it's not natural, is it? But I don't get that nobody caught on on what's going on. So she now can afford to move to a nice and spacious apartment. Oh, nice. And we fast forward one and a half years to December of 1935. And through a newspaper ad, Martha meets the 54-year-old seamstress Felicitas Kittenberger. And Felicitas is just about to open her own tailor shop. And in spring of 1936, Martha offers her to move into her spacious apartment. I guess to save money. Sure. And she also offers the seamstress to help her to get her business up and running and to bring in many new customers. Uh, But of course, uh, nothing of that happens and Felicitas is even forced to pawn her sewing machine. (sighs) But don't worry, Mother has another brilliant idea. And with the help of an insurance agent called Jenu Neumann, which is... I've never heard a name like this. (laughs) I'm sure he's German. And I guess they were lovers. She convinces Felicitas that right now would be the best moment to take out a life insurance and, of course, to make her the beneficiary. And Felicitas agrees and signs the insurance papers. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I can't imagine. Well, weirdly enough, only a couple of days later, Felicitas Kittenberger gets very sick. No. And she complains about a horrible headache and starts to show signs of paralysis. Her son takes her to the hospital, but there is not much they can do. And Felicitas dies at the beginning of August 1935. And the doctors? They marked natural as a cause of death. I... 
I just, I can't. I, I, how? What's going on there? Yeah, who are these people? Oh my god! And I'm not, I'm not. We are not laughing at anyone that was killed. It's no, the situation that all these people are getting killed, and the doctors are like, "Well, that seems natural to me." Like all our hair and teeth <laughs> fell out. That's fine. That's completely a normal thing to happen in six weeks' time. It's so bizarre. All these people keep dying around her and everybody's just like, yep, okay. Right? I mean, everybody was, it's, it's all lead and arsenic, it's fine. But it's like, wow. Yeah, seriously. By this time, you would think the doctors were like, I can tell you, <laughs> what year was this? Well, listen, I can tell you one thing for certain. This was either a natural death or rat poison. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, apparently they couldn't tell the difference. Not in Vienna, not in it's, that hospital. It's just... <laughs> Yeah, it's insane to me that this many people in her life would die in such horrific ways. And in such a short period of time. And at no point was anybody just like, hmm, this seems a bit iffy. You'd think there'd be that one cop on the force, right, that like no one listens to, but he finally cracked it. Okay, so Martha receives the insurance money and... Always. And burns through it in the blink of an eye. Of course she does. So what does she do? She reports a break-in and demands 12,000 shilling, which would be 33,600 euros. But the insurance company once more doesn't buy it and the police can prove pretty quickly that the break-in was staged. So they arrest Mata. And the arrest leads Felicita's son to contact the investigators and he tells them of his mother's sudden and for him very inexplicable death and of his suspicion that she might have been poisoned. Because apparently Mata herself had once told the son that she's in the possession of a very potent poison. Because, I mean, why not tell the family of your next victim about these kind of things? <laughs> Normal. <sighs> wow. Just the hubris. Felicita's body is exhumed and finally they realize that this was indeed not a natural death. They detect a deadly amount of rat poison in the body. So now the investigators realize that all this death in Martha's life could be considered a wee bit suspicious. Oh hey, yeah, this is a little iffy. <laughs> and now Martha is not only charged with yet another insurance fraud, but with four counts of murder. Oh, it's about time. And while awaiting trial, Martha claims to suffer from paralysis and that she lost her eyesight. So she spends the pre-trial detention in the hospital ward, which I think is nicer than in the normal cells, I guess. Okay. And trial starts in May 1938 and Martha is accused of four counts of murder, one attempted murder and two counts of fraud. That's a lot. That's a lot of charges. She earned them all. And people were all over this case. I mean, let's not forget that Marta must have been so infamous already. First the trial with her husband about chopping off his foot. Yeah. Then her husband and daughter dying and the people of Vienna donating money for her. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and now this. And while during her first trial, she charmed everybody in the courtroom with her swears and her pretty face. She now tries to pull some heartstrings by playing blind and paralyzed. God, what a bitch. Thank God that doesn't work because they call in a witness who saw Martha reading the newspaper just fine. I will point out, though, that sometimes you can't tell. <laughs> yeah, but she claimed that she's completely 100% blind. Yeah, and she I know it. what you mean. Yeah. She's faking it. Yeah, yeah. No, she was definitely faking it, which is, you know. So then Mata Marek offers to be put under hypnosis to prove her innocence, but that's not necessary because the prosecution can prove that Mata had ordered several containers of Celio by a nearby pharmacy. <laughs> and that's the best. She even had it delivered to her apartment. 
Oh my God. I mean, she really thought, this woman really thought she would never be caught. Seriously. The judge calls her a comedian and that she was able to fool so many people for so many years shows how good of an actress she was. But that didn't stop Matt from keeping this charade up. <laughs> it didn't matter though, because in the end, Matt Amarek is found guilty of four counts of murder and sentenced to death by guillotine. Oh, guillotine. They aren't fucking around. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I just channeled Bill Hader as Keith Morrison. Ooh, guillotine. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> How does that work? I think the people that listen to this show understand that when we're joking and laughing about things, it's not about the pe It's never about the victims, ever. So, anyway. We're just, you know, it's horrible, but she deserves it, kind of. Yeah, she does. So Austria and death penalty, that's uh, kind of a back and forth. So is abolished for the first time in 1787 by Emperor Joseph II, who was the son of Maria Theresia. And he was the emperor who was um, a proponent of absolutism and responsible for separating church and state. We like him. Yeah. Sure. In 1803, the death penalty was reintroduced, and in 1919, it was mostly abolished once more, only to be reintroduced again in 1933. We just can't make up our mind. Oh, make up your mind, Austria. <laughs> we can't. We literally can't. Okay. Now, women in Austria who were sentenced to death usually were not executed. They used to get a pardon first by the emperor and after World War I by the president and their death sentence was transformed to a life sentence and then they could hope to be released from prison after several years. And Marta Marek thought, cool, that's what, what's going to happen to her too. But she didn't consider one very important thing. In 1938, Austria became part of Nazi Germany and there was no more president to grant her a pardon and Adolf Hitler had absolutely no interest in pardoning a woman, especially with a Jewish maiden name, Löwenstein. Of course. And her execution was scheduled for 6th of December 1938. The executioner had built a special contraption to be able to execute the paralyzed woman with the so-called machinery F. F is for Feierbeil, the German word for guillotine. Oh. And the machinery F had been brought in from Berlin as prior to 1938, the death penalty in Austria had been executed by hanging. Okay. And when Martha was brought up to the guillotine in her special wheelchair... Is there a picture of it? Sorry. Is there a picture of this wheelchair? Sorry. I'm going straight to hell. Is there a picture of the wheelchair? <laughs> I think it's just a very straightforward wheelchair with one of these high... It must have had like a tilt back. <laughs> I, think... I think what the... I'm sorry that I'm laughing. I think what they built was like a bench it where they could lie her on. Her so it's not like they... Because you'd have to be... It's not like they chopped her head off in her wheelchair. They put her on a bench lying. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Because I was like, well, did they like, did they just drop her back? Because that would suck. Because then you're no. looking up at the blade. Like, you're not supposed to have to do that. But then they could like, if you just strapped her to a chair and kind of just <laughs> shoved her forward. So she was... I don't. Listen. Uh. <sighs> All right. So when Marta was brought up to the guillotine in her special wheelchair, she suddenly started to thrash around and even managed to kick the executioner in the stomach. Oh, man. All that extra work on the executioner's <laughs> behalf. And it was all a fucking ruse. Uh, I don't feel too sorry for him, though, because this executioner was about to become the busiest henchman in the Third Reich. Oh, shit. It's a shame she didn't hit him in the bollocks then. Sorry. <sighs> yeah, so all the struggling and kicking didn't help Mata. They overpowered her, obviously, and placed her on the bench. 
Yeah. And Martha Marek was the second woman to be executed in Austria in the 20th century. The first one was Juliane Hummel. She was hung in 1900 for torturing and killing her five-year-old daughter. Oh, that's awful. That's awful. Yeah, but her husband, who was also in on it, just got a couple of years, like 10 years. I, I don't remember, but he didn't get sentenced to death. Oh, wow. That's, that's not enough time. Mm -mm. That's, uh, yeah, that's not good at all. So this one is hard because she was an absolute monster and she just killed everybody. Mm -hmm. But you also wonder a little bit about what was done to her at a young age. Like how young was she when she learned that the intrinsic value in people is what they could give you? Yeah. Right. I mean, what kind of role model did she have? Exactly. It's exactly yeah. what her mother taught her, is as long as there's a payout, yeah. it's okay. As long as there's money kind of come from this, then it's worth it. So you do feel like, ugh, yeah. But still, it's there's no excuse. I mean, people go through horrible things. I mean, and she, she got help from her from her aunt, and she could have just waited. I mean, she, she was put in the wheel. She could have just waited. Right. Yeah. She's not going to live forever. That sounded really callous, but no, this woman, <laughs> just wait, just hang on. She won't live forever. No, but it's just, it's, yeah, you feel she's a fucking monster, but then there is just that. Yeah, definitely. And that she killed off her, her husband and her kid. That was just because she wanted to get rid of her family. Yeah, she didn't want to live in her little shack with a factory worker husband, which, yeah, ugh, God, she was a nightmare. She was. She was not a good person. I mean, you feel, obviously, you feel bad for her and you understand where some of it may have come from, but people have gone through far worse and not even approached any of this. So that is, yeah, that's a really good one, Johanna. Thanks. I've never heard that one. And uh, that lady was a monster. So, yeah. So did you have anything good and happy this week? Well, I'm happy that next week my husband is going to come home for Christmas. Oh. I bought the Christmas tree yesterday. We're going to pick it up then next week. And as I said, we're not going to decorate it before. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to spending time with him on the couch and finally watching the Christmas movies we always watch. How about you? My something good this week. I have a story that I promised I'd tell you. So we'll leave it at the end here for people who don't like the chit chat. Somehow douching came up in the Facebook group and... I promised I'd tell my best and only douching story. And it happened, my mother was away, and I was 12, and our dog, our beagle, Mix, uh, Patches, got sprayed by a skunk. Oh, holy hell, did she get hit by this skunk. So we washed her first in tomato juice, and that did nothing. She just smelled like skunk and tomato, and it was disgusting. So my dad called a friend of his, whose uh, husband was a vet, and he said, uh, swears by it, wash the dog with Johnson's No More Tears baby shampoo, and then rinse the dog with Massengill vinegar and water douche. Fine. Of course, we don't have any of that. So my dad drives up to CVS, which is like our, a big local chain pharmacy, and he gives me $20. And he's like, get a bottle of Johnson's No More Tears baby shampoo and as much douche as you can afford with this money. And I'm like, fine. So I go into CVS, find the baby shampoo, can't find the douche. I'm 12. I haven't had a period yet. Wandering around, looking for, you know, the box with the not so fresh feeling on the front. Can't find it. Give up. Go over to a sales associate. And I'm like, hi, excuse me, ma'am. I'm so sorry to bother you but could you show me where the douche is? And she's like, you are way too young to be douching. And I said, don't worry. My father sent me in. It's for our dog. <laughs> 
So it took a really long time in hindsight for me to look back and understand why she seemed more upset that I needed douche for the dog. I can't imagine her face. <laughs> I don't think I ever explained the dog had been sprayed by a skunk. So priceless. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad's never shopped at CVS since. <laughs> but it did help. Yeah. So... Yeah. All right, everybody. I hope you've really enjoyed this episode as much as I did, Johanna. That was awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Please come say hi to us in our Facebook group. Please follow us on Instagram, on Twitter. Yes. Where else, any? Join the group. It's a really fun group. You can find it under uh, Fresh Hell Murder. It should pop right up. That's right. Check out our merch store. You will find a link in our social media and on our webpage www.freshhellpodcast.com It's a Teespring shop. Uh, it has some hoodies and shirts and mugs and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. If you have a moment, please do take the time to leave a quick review. We would really appreciate it. Tell your friends about us and um, please say hi to your dogs. Yes. And as always, if you yourself are going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.